You're listening to an Islam 21C production. It's fair to say that the dramatic spread and subsequent worldwide presence of Islam was only made possible by the extraordinarily far-sighted political decisions of the Prophet Muhammad Although it's true that nearly all the compilers of the seerah and those who write about the Prophet do acknowledge him to be the political leader of the growing Muslim Ummah, almost none of them really go on to specify what that meant in real terms. Join Sheikh Abdul Haq Buli as he looks at the governing blueprint, a hundred years after the abolishment of the last caliphate, drawn up by the most successful leader in history. Listen and learn about the Prophet in his role as ruler. Remember to maximize your impact by saying sallallahu alayhi wasallam as much as you can. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Sallallahu ala sayyidina wa maulana Muhammadin wa alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. This uh, talk is entitled The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in his role as ruler. O oh Allah, I complain to you of my weakness, my lack of means, and my insignificance in other people's sight. O oh most merciful, you who are the Lord of the weak, and you who are my Lord, to whom will you entrust me? To people far away who will abuse me, or to my enemies whom you've given power over me? As long as you are not angry with me, I do not mind. But your, but your good pleasure is my hope and my desire. I seek refuge in the light of your noble face, by which all darkness is dispelled and everything in this world and the next put in its rightful place. From your anger descending on me or your wrath alighting on me. You have the right to reprove until your good pleasure is complete. There is no power and no strength except in you. This dua of the Prophet was uttered by him at the moment of his greatest helplessness. After his humiliation in Taif at the hands of the nobles of Thaqif, when it looked as if his mission to establish Allah's deen was all but impossible to achieve. It may seem a strange way to open a talk dedicated to examining his rule as a great ruler. However, the total submission to Allah it demonstrates and the complete dependence on him it displays are in fact the hidden secret of both his inner splendor, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, revealed shortly after this incident, during the night journey and his ascent through the heavens to the very presence of his Lord, and his outward worldly power, whose beginnings can be traced to his meeting with the delegation from Yathrib that occurred during the Hajj of the following year. And not only that, because the truth is that the total submission to and dependence on Allah expressed in the dua remain unalterably the inner reality of the Prophet 
even during the days of his eventual, almost total, outward supremacy. In spite of his mastery of Medina, the dramatic success and spread of Islam, and his total victory over his enemies, he remained utterly and continually aware of the fact that all power and all strength belong to Allah alone. Reflecting this, when Jibreel السلام, came to the Prophet وسلم, and offered him the choice between being a prophet king and a prophet slave, he chose to be a prophet slave. This choice was underlined in a hadith related by Abu Masood al-Badri, in which he reported that a man stood before the Prophet وسلم, trembling from fear. Seeing this, he said, وسلم, calm yourself, I am not a king. It must be understood, however, that in rejecting kingship, he was rejecting the outward appearance of the regal state, not the responsibilities of rulership, which it also entails. He wanted nothing to do with the pomp and circumstance of monarchy, with the conspicuous wealth, wealth, the sumptuous dwellings, the, the elaborate protocol and court procedures, and all the other trappings of power that inevitably accompany it. Indeed, throughout his entire time in Medina, he continued to live in the same way as the most modest of its inhabitants, and a great deal less comfortably than many of them. But this did not mean that he was not in every sense the ruler of this burgeoning Muslim polity, as he himself explicitly affirmed in the hadith of Ibn Abi Hala, when he said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, convey to me the need of someone who cannot bring it. If someone conveys to a ruler the need of someone who cannot bring it, Allah will make his feet firm on the day of rising. Although it is true that nearly all the compilers of the seerah and those who write about the Prophet ﷺ do acknowledge him to be the political leader of the growing Muslim ummah, almost none of them go on to specify what that meant in real terms. It is frequently implied that real government and political administrations did not, did not in fact come into being until the time of the Umayyad and Abbasid caliphates, with the accompanying implication that the governing structures they employed were in fact based on and borrowed from the Roman or Persian models. That is far from the case. The truth is that the guidance of the Quran and its implementation in the Sunnah of the Prophet were as much in evidence in matters of governance and administration as they were in any other aspect of the life of the, life of the first community of Islam. And the Prophet was as much a model in respect of these matters as he was in every other area of life. It is a commonplace that for the Prophet the deen was not limited to acts of worship but extended into the affairs of everyday life. And there is no doubt that this included in detailed and practical terms the governance and administration of the fledgling Muslim Ummah. 
The theory that Islamic civilization was somehow acquired by later association with the Roman and Persian empires ignores the tremendously powerful educative influence of the Prophet ﷺ himself in every area of activity. The scope of the subjects he expressed interest in is truly vast. They included anatomy, medicine, various aspects of natural science, general behavior, ethics, travel, history, geography, mathematics, agriculture, and he encouraged intellectual inquiry into and practical application of all these fields of human endeavor. This first and foremost had the effect of utterly transforming the people to whom it was directly addressed. As Al-Qahtani says of, of this prophetic education process, it taught these great men how to diffuse the true principles of Islam and enabled them to save the world from the brink of collapse. These were men who, before they became Muslim, knew only their day-to-day -day existence in this world and how to tend herds and gain their livelihood in the meanest kind of desert life. After Islam, they were transformed into sophisticated leaders. They were resourceful, wise politicians and governors entrusted with, with administration so that Al-Qarafi said in Al-Faruq, the companions of the Messenger of Allah radiallahu anhum wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam were vast seas of knowledge in a great variety of matters of the Sharia, the intellect, mathematics and politics and inward and outward knowledge. However, in the course of effecting this change, the Prophet inevitably had to confront the increasingly complex social and political needs of the expanding Muslim polity. Although, as I've said, this aspect of his work has failed to gain the recognition it deserves from most of those who've studied the development of the first community of Islam, the truth is that there is virtually no area of later governance which cannot trace its origins back to the direct guidance and instructions of the Prophet ﷺ himself. If we examine the departments which, govern, which governments to this day consider to be necessary for the correct and effective implementation of the authority they embody, we find almost all of them prefigured in a seminal form in the administrative and political activity of the Prophet in Al-Madinah Al-Munawwara. Internal affairs, foreign affairs, financial affairs, legal affairs, defense and military matters, markets and trade, health, provisional government, education, agriculture, and even sport. All these were systematically dealt with by the Prophet ﷺ and those he delegated to, his, to assist him with them. In his great work, Al-Taratib Al-Idariya, Sheikh Abdul Hay Al-Qatani devotes two large volumes to examining in enormous detail this aspect of the Prophet's legacy. There is obviously not time to go into this exhaustively, but a few examples will show how the wisdom, guidance, and organizational ability of the Prophet ﷺ in his role as political leader and chief administrator played an absolutely vital part in the primal formation of the Muslim Ummah and was an indispensable element in its future development 
as a world power, first at the hands of the Khulafa al-Rashidun, then in the kingdom of the Bani Umayyah, uh, and the empire of the Bani Abbas, and indeed beyond them, to every Islamic dynasty and government down to the present time. Perhaps the first overtly political action of the Prophet ﷺ was the Ba'yah, the oath of allegiance given him in Mina during the Hajj by 12 representatives of the tribes of Aus and Khazraj from the oasis of Yathrib, followed a year later by a second oath taken by 73 members of the same tribes, by which they invited him to become their leader. This led directly to the Hijrah and the Meccan Muslim. <coughs> this led directly to the Hijra of the Prophet ﷺ and the Meccan Muslims to Medina, and has been, even down to some of the wording used, the foundational basis of political leadership within the Muslim community ever since. A further early example of the political acumen of the Prophet ﷺ occurred at the moment of his entry into the place that was to be his home for the rest of his life and was to see the first flowering of the social and political reality of Islam. He allowed his camel to choose the spot where the mosque was to be built and then made the building of the mosque in which the whole community participated and which became the core and hub of their activities from that time on the first undertaking of the newly formed Muslim polity. The way the place was chosen removed any possibility of mutual animosity, and the way the mosque was built brought together the disparate elements of the community and unified them immediately in the performance of a common task in which they all participated. Very shortly after this, he appointed the site of the main market of Medina, close by the mosque. These two actions provided a precedent for the creation of Muslim settlements that has continued to be followed down through the centuries to our own time. Another very significant political act instigated by the Prophet ﷺ, shortly after his arrival in his new home, was the drawing up and signing of a comprehensive and detailed pact of mutual support which bound together all the various factions of Yathrib, Arab and Jewish, several of whom had been hostile to one another up until that time, into a single unified polity with mutual rights and obligations agreed on by all participants. This document both in its observance and its breach, was to provide the political backdrop to the life of the first Muslims throughout the early years of their struggle to establish Islam as a living social reality. One other political action of this early period of the Prophet's governance was to have repercussions that vastly transcended the deceptive simplicity of its original appearance. And would, mark, and would, on its own, mark out the Prophet ﷺ as a great political leader. This was the pact of brotherhood he instituted between the Muhajirun, the Muslims who had emigrated to Medina from Mecca, 
and the Ansar, the Muslims who were the original inhabitants of Medina. Each of the Muhajirun was allotted a brother from among the Ansar. Following the instruction of the Prophet ﷺ, let each of you take a brother in Allah. In this way, a bond was formed that cut through all the precedents of Arab culture. Until then, all relationships had been based on clan and tribal ties, to the extent that no other relationship had, politically speaking, any real meaning at all. By this one move, the Prophet ﷺ created a previously unknown type of social bonding, whereby the political relationship of those within it was determined not by any genealogical factor, but by a common religious belief. It was reinforced by the fact that among those particip participating in it were the African Bilal and the Persian Salman. So the pact set aside tribal, ethnic and racial differences and created a completely new social and political order based solely on mutual adherence to the tenets of Islam. It is fair to say that the dramatic spread and subsequent worldwide presence of Islam was only made possible by this extraordinarily far-sighted political decision. Once settled in Medina, the Prophet ﷺ was faced with the task of organizing the Muslims who up until that time had no kind of political unity into a single organic whole. It is beyond the scope of this talk to enumerate all the many measures he took to achieve this aim, but it is worth mentioning just a few. One simple but effective measure was the, unif was the unification of the whole settlement through the prayer. Bukhayr ibn Abdullah ibn al-Ashjam said in Abu Dawud that, in, that there were nine mosques in Medina, apart from the mosque of the Messenger of Allah and all of them prayed by the Adhan of Bilal. Another thing he did, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, was appoint a number of scribes who firstly recorded in writing the Book of Allah at the direction of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam himself, but who would also write down all sorts of other matters concerning the general administration of the whole community, such as treaties, letters of instruction to envoys, contracts of various kinds, letters to rulers, land grants, and other such things. Prominent among them were Ubay ibn, ibn Kaab, Zaid ibn Thabit, and later Muawiyah ibn Abu Sufyan. But there were many others as well. Sheikh ibn al-Arabi al-Hatimi says in, in his Muhadarat that Az-Zubair ibn al-Awwam and Juhm ibn Salt ibn Asalt would write the properties of the would, would write the property of the zakat. Udayfa ibn al-Yaman would write the estimates of the palms. Al-Mughira ibn, ibn Shuba and Hussein ibn Numair would write down debts and business transactions. And Shuh Rahbil ibn Hassana would write documents to kings. In all, there were said to have been 42 of these scribes. The place where they used to write was known as the Diwan. And this continued to be the name of the chief administrative departments 
of the main centers of Islamic government down to the end of the Ottoman Empire. Of course, they became more and more sophisticated and much greater in size as the complex needs of the lands under Muslim governance multiplied over time. But they certainly found their source in this original prophetic institution in Al-Madina Al-Munawwara. On the legal front, the majority of cases were judged by the Prophet ﷺ himself, firstly on the basis of the Quranic guidance he had received, some of which was revealed as a direct response to specific situations with which he found himself confronted, but also, of course, on the basis of his own innate wisdom and his knowledge and reading of the particular circumstances with which he was confronted. They covered an enormous variety of different matters. Among them were cases concerning wills and inheritance, all matters of marriage and divorce, parentage issues, apostasy, fornication, slander, drunkenness, theft, capital crimes, personal injury, retaliation and blood money, emancipation of sl slaves, sales and business transactions, hunting, slaughtering, and warfare. Quite a lot of legal work. These and every other kind of dispute were brought to him, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, for resolution. And of course, his decisions concerning them created precedents which have remained in force ever since and are still acted upon to this day. Occasionally, his, his intervention in the dispute was somewhat unexpected, as when Kaab ibn Malik was demanding the repayment of a debt from ibn, Habi ibn Abi Hadrad in the mosque. Suddenly, the curtain dividing the Prophet's quarters from the mosque was lifted up, and he, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, called out, Kaab, reduce it by half. <laughs> Although the majority of cases were dealt with by the Prophet himself, he did appoint others as judges, particularly when he sent people to other regions, but also in Medina itself. There is the famous instance when the Prophet asked Sa'ad ibn Wa'ad to pass judgment on the rebellious Jew Jewish clan, the Bani Qurayza. Among others, appointed to fulfill a judicial role were Umar ibn al-Khattab, Ali ibn Abd Talib, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Ubay ibn Ka'ab, Zaid ibn Thabit, and Abu Musa al-Ashari. We find in Ibn Hanbal and al-Hakim a hadith related from Ma'aqil ibn Yasa in which he says, The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam commanded me to judge, and he said, Allah is with a judge as long as he does not deliberately act unjustly. And in Ibn Hanbal again, the two, dispute, two disputants came to the Prophet ﷺ and he said to Umar, judge between them. And again, he said the same thing to Uqba when two disputants came, judge between them. The Prophet ﷺ instructed those he appointed in how to give judgment, and there is no doubt at all that all Islamic judiciaries formed since then have been based on this original model instituted by the Prophet ﷺ in Medina. The same applies to regional and provincial government. The Prophet ﷺ appointed governors over all the areas that came under his control, giving them detailed instructions about how best to fulfill the task with which he was entrusting them. Sometimes this was in the form of a letter, and the texts of a few of these letters have survived down to our own time. 
Zurqani said in the commentary on Al-Mawahib that the commanders whom the Prophet, the Emirs, whom the Prophet sent to various areas were numerous. They included the governor of Mecca, Atab ibn Usaid. Ibn Jama'ah said, the messenger of Allah وسلم, put Atab ibn Usaid in charge of Mecca and establishing the Eid and the Hajj for the Muslims in the year 8, eight the 8th year of the Hijrah. According to Subh, when Badan, the representative of Khusrau, became Muslim, the Prophet ﷺ appointed him over the entire district of Yemen. His residence was at Sana'a. He remained there until he died after the, hajj, the farewell Hajj. The Prophet ﷺ then appointed his son, Shahr ibn Badan, over Sana'a. He appointed a governor over every district under his control. Ibn Abi Shaiba over Taif. Sa'id ibn uh, Khafaf over the sub-tribes of Tamim. Salama ibn Yazid al-Juhfi over Marwan. Saifi ibn Amir over the Banu Thalaba. And others elsewhere. Again, this administrative uh, system inaugurated by the Prophet ﷺ was the model followed by the subsequent rulers of the Muslim Ummah. Regarding places further afield, what we might call foreign affairs. There was also considerable activity emanating from the Medina of the Prophet We know that Dihya ibn Khalifa al-Kalbi was sent with a letter that he was told to give to the governor of Basra in order that it should be passed on to Heraclius, the emperor of Rome. Abdullah ibn Hudhafa al-Sahmi was sent to Khuzra, the emperor of Persia. Amr ibn Umayyah was sent to the Negus, king of Abyssinia. Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a to Al-Muqawqis, the ruler of Alexandria. Al-Ala ibn Hadrami to Al-Mundiyas bin Sawa, the king of Bahrain. The Prophet instructed all these envoys in the kind of diplomacy he wanted them to practice during their missions and often supplied them with a written message to deliver to the ruler to whom they were being sent. The Prophet also received embassies and delegations from other lands in Medina. Once more, in the course of this activity, the basic nature of the relationship between the Muslim polity and foreign powers was defined and clarified, and was to form the basis of all foreign relations between Islamic government governance and uh, foreign powers from that time on. Then we have the vital area of finance and trade. As we know, in the books of FIP, an enormous amount of space is devoted to these matters. Again, something that does not come across in most versions of the Sirah is that during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ in Medina, uh, but during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ, Medina was a veritable hive of economic activity. There was, of course, the work connected with date palms and other agricultural crops, animal husbandry, market trading, and occasional caravans. But there were also a multitude of other businesses being carried on in the city. Dozens of different crafts and trades essential to the daily life of the community employed considerable numbers of the inhabitants of the city. And so it can be seen that the economic life of Medina was in fact quite complex. And all this activity, of course, required a certain amount of regulation and supervision. 
Once more, the responsibility for this fell squarely on the, soul, on the shoulders of the Prophet Although he never minted any coins himself, the coinage in use in Medina, the coinage in use in Medina was precisely specified and defined by the Prophet The coin most commonly used was the silver dirham. And Nawawi says in the commentary on Al-Muhadzib, the sound view on which one must rely and which one must accept is that the common dirhams in the time of the Prophet had a known weight and a known value. They were already understood and zakat was connected to them as well as other duties and values in the Sharia. The same applied to the gold dinar. The precise weights of these coins were meticulously recorded and formed the basis of currency within the territories of Islam from then on, being used throughout history as the standard measure for the payment of zakat and many other legal uses. Other measures of both weight and volume were confirmed and ratified by the Prophet himself and are still in use today. For instance, the mud and sa'ah measures of volume, which he asked Allah to bless, which are still used to calculate zakat al-fitr, the amount of grain and other, or other foodstuffs every Muslim must give to the poor at the end of Ramadan. The prohibition against riba meant that it had to be clear that all contracts and transactions were absolutely free of any usurious element and this clearly involved some scrutiny of what was taking place in the marketplace. That was partly carried out through market inspection known as hispa. And muhtasibs, the people charged with this duty, were appointed by the Prophet ﷺ to make sure all the business in the market was being carried on according to the dictates of the Sharia. For instance, he appointed Sa'id ibn al-As over the market of Mecca after the conquest of uh, after the conquest, and Umar anhum, anhum ajma'in, was appointed over the market of Medina. As well as this, people were appointed to record contracts. Al-Qudai and Ibn Hazm tell us that Al-Mughira ibn Shu'bah and Al-Hussein ibn Numair, and it is said Ibn Bashar as well, used to write down debts and business transactions. And we know from Ibn Hajar that Al-Ala ibn Uqba and Al-Aqam used also to write down debts, contracts, and business transactions between people. All of this had to be organized and authorized by the Prophet We hope you are enjoying this podcast. If so, please think about donating, following, sharing, and giving five stars to on the platform that you're listening on. Also, check out more Islam 21C podcasts on the following platforms. SoundCloud, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Then there was the important matter of the collection and distribution of zakat and the jizya tax. Firstly, zakat had to be assessed. Al-Qatani says, assessment in the time of the Prophet was done with dates, grapes, and grains. Abu Dawood related in his Sunan from Atab ibn Usaid that the Prophet sent him out and told him to assess the grapes 
in the same way that dates were assessed. He said that he should take zakat of grapes in the form of raisins in the same way that the zakat of dates was taken in the form of dried dates. Zakat was also recorded in writing. Ibn Hazm said in his book, Jawami Asira, the scribe of the Messenger وسلم, who used to write down the zakat was Azubair ibn Awam. If he was absent or excused, then Jaham ibn Assalt and Hudayfa ibn al Yaman wrote it down in his place. Collectors were appointed. Ibn Ishaq tells us that the Prophet sent out zakat collectors to the Arabs. They included Umar ibn al Khattab, Khalid ibn Sa'id ibn al As, Mu'ad ibn Jabal, Adi ibn Hatim al Tayyi, Azibraqan ibn Badr al Tamimi, and others. The same applied to the jizya tax. Ibn, Ab- Ibn Abdul Bar quotes from Ibn Shihab in the Tamheed saying, the first to give jizya among the people of the book were the people of Najran who were Christians. Then the Messenger of Allah accepted the jizya from the people of Bahrain who were Majans. Among those who were entrusted with collecting the jizya in the time of the Messenger of Allah were Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah and Mu'adh ibn Jabal. And once collected, <coughs> this revenue had to be stored and distributed, all of which necessitated a considerable amount of organization and administration. Alongside this was the general supervision of the financial affairs of, the, of, of provincial governors. Ibn al-Qayyim says, the Prophet took a full reckoning from his governors for their accounts on computation and expenditure as is stated in the two volumes of the Sahih from Abu Umayd al-Sa'idi. The last of these economic matters, and one of paramount importance to the future economic landscape and social order of the Muslim Ummah, was the establishment of awqaf, also known as habus. These are charitable foundations devoted to fulfilling the social and financial needs of Muslims in clearly specified ways. Al-Waqidi tells us, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, made a waqf of Al-A'raf, Barqa, Musayyib, Al-Dalal, Hasna, and Al-Safiyya, and the waterhole of Umm Ibrahim in the year 7 AH. Umar ibn al-Khattab, Uthman ibn Awf, Ali, Talha, Az-Zubair, Zaid ibn Thabit, Abdullah ibn Umar, and Amr ibn al-As also made habus. Al-Qatani says, the Prophet وسلم, and the Muslims after him continued to use the habus until it became one of the main sources of revenue in Islam to help its people. And the income from Awqaf today in all Muslim lands exceeds that obtained by means of of, of taxation. This was written in the early part of the 20th century. And it is clear from it that during the whole history of Islam, from the time of the Prophet onwards, Almost into our own time, the great majority of the social welfare needs of Muslims throughout the world were taken care of by myriads of awqaf, founded on the model established by the Prophet ﷺ in Medina more than 1400 years ago. Another area involving the leadership of the Prophet ﷺ is one which has been covered far more thoroughly by scholars than many of those we've looked at so far namely his role as a military leader. 
Because so much information is readily available elsewhere, I will not go into too much detail here. Suffice it to say that during the whole of his time in Medina, the Muslim community was in a constant state of warfare. And military matters must have taken up a considerable amount of his time and energy. He himself personally led 26 military expeditions and organized a, third, a, third, uh, organized a further 30. He oversaw the recruitment of those participating in all of these, was responsible for the tactics in those he led, and masterminded the overall military strategy of the Muslims throughout the whole period. He created an efficient intelligence network and introduced several innovations in warfare previously unknown among the Arabs, including the well-known defensive ditch in Medina, time of al-Khandaq, and, and testudos and catapults in the siege of Taif. And the list goes on and on. The Prophet ﷺ took great interest in every area of the lives of those he governed. And apart from what we've already seen, also implemented measures in the fields of education, health, agriculture, social welfare, and even housing, many of which had implications that extended far into the future. What is astonishing to realize is that all this intense political and administrative activity, most of which was adopted by later Muslim rulers and thereby formed the basis of the governance of the Muslims throughout the whole of their history, and much of which is still in current use today, was compressed into a period of less than 10 years. And moreover, all of it was actually ancillary to the main goal of his life, which was to remind those around him of the true nature of existence, transmit to them the message revealed to him by his Lord, and in the course of doing that, he purified their hearts and trained them so that they, in their turn, were able to take that message out into the world and establish the worship of the one God in such a way that it would be made available to all future generations of human beings in every part of the world from that time on. But notwithstanding this, the simple truth remains that in the whole of human history, few rulers achieved so much administratively and politically in so short a time as the Prophet Muhammad And none whatsoever had anything like the same influence on the future. For the effects of the decisions he made are still clearly visible in every part of the world. So far, we have concentrated purely on the political and administrative activity of the Prophet on what he did. We should now spend a little time looking at how he did it, at what it was that enabled him to accomplish so much and make this extraordinary impact in such a comparatively short span of time. The key to it lies in what he said about himself when he said, I have only been sent to perfect the noble qualities of character. He did this by exemplifying in himself all the qualities he was referring to. And a number of these qualities have a great bearing on the way he fulfilled his role as the ruler of the first Muslim community and the outstanding success he had in doing so. First and foremost among them was the quality I mentioned at the very beginning of this talk, 
is constant awareness of and dependence on Allah, his Lord. This was reflected in the consistency of his worship, the frequency of his supplication, and the constancy of his recollection of his Lord in every situation. It meant that in everything he did, his prime objective was the pleasure of Allah alone. And it absolved his actions from all self-seeking or self-serving motives. He was absolutely free from any kind of personal ambition and any thought of personal gain. Alongside this, some of the qualities of character he so perfectly embodied are particularly pertinent to his, rule as, to his, to his role as ruler. Among them are his integrity, his courage, his generosity, his forbearance, his resolution, and his humility. As regards his integrity, وسلم, even before Islam, he was known to the whole population of, of Mecca as Al-Amin, the trustworthy one. People would give him things on trust in the certain knowledge that they would be safe with him. And this was amply demonstrated by the fact that when he was forced to flee for his life from the city of his birth, he nevertheless left instructions for the return to their owners of all the items he was still holding in trust. He was never known to tell a lie. And everyone, even his enemies, knew that they could absolutely trust what he said. He was famous for the fact that his feelings could be gauged from the expression in his face. With him, you could be certain that what you saw was what you got. This meant that people knew they could trust him and that he was not going to say one thing to their face and then do something else behind their back. An important and immensely reassuring quality in any leader. His undoubted courage enabled him to always lead from the front, both actually and metaphorically. A frequently cited example of it is what happened at the Battle of Hunayn. When the large Muslim army was suddenly ambushed, the Muslim fighters went into retreat, and the retreat soon turned into a rout. Almost alone, the Prophet ﷺ stood his ground, facing the enemy on his white mule. With a few loyal supporters round him, he called out to the fleeing soldiers, Where are you going, men? Come to me, I am the Messenger of Allah, I am the son of Abdul Muttalib. Little by little, men came back, and gradually order was restored, and the day was won. This is one example among many of this inspiring aspect of his character, sallallahu Sheikh Alwi al-Maliki says about the courage of the Prophet in his book, Muhammad al-Insan al-Kamil, it was because of it that he participated in all the many battles he attended in his military life. And it is not known that he retreated from his position even a single foot or a single finger's breadth. This made him, for his companions, a leader who inspired the utmost confidence and obedience, so that the young and old of them alike would be quick to heed his signals, not only because he was the messenger of Allah, but because of the courage they witnessed from him. His generosity was fabulous, and another fact, and another factor that inspired others to follow him. 
he is not known to have sent anyone who asked him for something away empty-handed. And in order to do this, he would even borrow from others when he had nothing himself. There are far too many examples of it to be able to do justice to them here, but one that is relevant in this, con uh, relevant in this context would be useful. Muslim narrates that Anas, radiallahu anhu, said that the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa was never asked for anything except that he gave it. A man came and he gave him all the sheep between two mountains. The man returned to his people and said, Oh, my people, embrace Islam, for Muhammad gives like one who does not fear poverty. Another quality that had enormous bearing on his caliber as a leader was his inexhaustible forbearance. Again, the examples of this are too numerous to catalog here, but a couple of examples will illustrate the importance of it to his leadership role. On one occasion, a Jewish rabbi, wishing to test the claim of the Prophet ﷺ, the prophethood, rudely and roughly asked for the delivery of a consignment of dates before it was actually due. Umar ibn al-Khattab, who was present, called him an enemy of Allah and threatened to kill him. The Prophet ﷺ chided Umar, saying, He and I needed something other than this from you, Umar that you should encourage me to honor my commitment properly and ask him to ask me more politely. He then asked Umar to give the man his due and add some more on account of having frightened him. Having witnessed this example of forbearance on the, on the part of the Prophet Wasallam, the, ra the rabbi and all his household, except for one, became Muslim. And in, an, and in, and in a hadith narrated by Bukhari and Muslim, Anas radiallahu anhu said, I was with the Prophet ﷺ when he was wearing a thick cloak. A Bedouin pulled him so violently by his cloak that it left a red mark on his neck. Then he said, Muhammad, let me load up my camels with the property of Allah you have in your possession, but you will never let me load up from your own or your father's property. The Prophet ﷺ was silent for a time and then said, all the property is Allah's property and I am his slave. Then he continued, Shall I take retaliation from you for what you've done to me? The man replied, No. The Prophet asked, Why not? The Bedouin said, Because you do not pay back a bad action with another like it. The Prophet laughed and ordered that one camel be loaded with barley and the other with dates. The importance of this character trait to the Prophet's task is made clear in the Quran. And it says, it is a mercy from Allah that you were gentle with them. If you'd been rough or hard of heart, they would have scattered from around you. This tendency to kind-heartedness, so integral to the character of the Prophet ﷺ, must not, however, be taken in any way as an indication of any kind of weakness on his part. When needed, he had a firmness and resolution that were absolutely relentless in character. This was clearly demonstrated uh, in the early days of Islam when his uncle and guardian Abu Talib at the instigation of the Meccan nobles tried to persuade him to abandon his task of calling people to Islam. His memorable reply to his uncle was, by Allah, if they put the sun in my right hand and the moon in my left on condition that I abandon this course before he has made it victorious or I've perished in my attempt to, to make it so, I would not abandon it. This uncompromising determination hallmarked his life. 
and he never wavered in his struggle to see Allah's deen established completely, despite the appalling persecution he suffered and the many obstacles that continued to obstruct his way. Once he had made a firm decision, he resolutely stuck by it and saw it through, however difficult the consequences. And where the rights of Allah and the administration of justice was concerned, he never allowed himself to be turned away from what he knew to be right, no matter what it entailed. There is the famous hadith reported in, recorded in both Bukhari and Muslim, in which Aisha now reported that the Quraysh had been anxious about a Mahzumi woman who had committed theft and said, who can intercede with Allah's messenger on her behalf? They said, no one would dare do that, but Usama, who is so loved by Allah's messenger, So Usama spoke to him. The messenger of Allah said, do you intercede where one of the punishments prescribed by Allah is concerned? He then stood up and addressed the people saying, oh my people, those who have gone before you were destroyed because if any one of high rank committed theft amongst them, they spared him. And if anyone of low rank committed theft, they inflicted the prescribed punishment upon him. By Allah, if Fatima, the daughter of Muhammad, were to steal, I would have her hand cut off. He was never angry for himself or for any matter connected with this world. But when he became angry for the sake of Allah, nothing whatever could stand in his way. Finally, there is the astonishing matter of his unprecedented humility. He arrived in Medina as, it, as its acknowledged ruler, and by the time of his death, he was to all intents and purposes the absolute ruler of the whole of the Arabian Peninsula. And yet, his way of life never changed, and he continued to live as simply as the most humble of those he governed. There can never have been an any other ruler of even the smallest territory who was his like in this respect. He swept his room, sold his shoes, patched his clothes, fetched the water, milked the goats, ate with his servants, dressing them as he dressed himself, and he carried what he, bought, what he bought in the marketplace to his house. He did not like a special place to be reserved for him in a gathering and would sit wherever there was an empty place. He would ride a donkey, visit the sick, join funeral processions, processions and answer the invitation of all who invited him. Anas tells us that on one occasion, a mentally ill woman came up to the Prophet ﷺ and said, I need you to help me. He replied, sit in any, in any street of the city you wish, and I will stay with you until your need is fulfilled. Anas also said that any servant girl in Medina would take hold of the Prophet's hand and lead him wherever she wished. In other words, he completely shared the lives of those he lived among, suffering the same hardships as they did and going hungry when they went hungry. No wonder those people were happy to accept his leadership. And this brings us to my final point. When all these qualities I've mentioned are brought together in a man, only one reaction is possible. The power of some rulers over those they rule is gained through fear. With others, it is perhaps respect. In the case of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, it was nothing but love. He inspired tremendous love in all those who followed him, so that what bound the companions to the Prophet and made them obey him and follow him to the letter was simply their love for him.
when, when the Quraysh sent Urwa ibn Masud al-Thaqafi as their emissary to the Muslims camped at Al-Hudaybiyah, he returned to them and said, I have seen Khosrows in his, in his realm, Caesar in his empire, and the Negus in his kingdom. But never have I seen a people who love their leader as the Muslims love Muhammad. Not a hair falls from its head that they do not cherish. They will never give him up. So do what you think you have to do. The first community was built on this love and held together by it. And it was this that turned them into an unstoppable force that spread across half the known world in a single generation. And it is this, along with those far-ranging achievements we've looked at earlier, that marks out the Prophet Muhammad as almost certainly the greatest ruler and political leader the world has ever seen. A messenger has come to you from among yourselves. Your suffering is distressing to him. He is deeply concerned for you. He is gentle and merciful to the believers. But if they turn away, say, Allah is enough for me. There is no God but him. I have put my trust in him. He is the Lord of the mighty throne. There is no power and no strength except in Allah, the exalted, the almighty. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please donate, follow, share and give five stars. Check out other Islam 21C podcasts on SoundCloud, CastBox, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This was an Islam 21C production.